eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. This is our debut episode. We hope this will be the first of many, bringing you a weekly look at the major issues in NASCAR in depth. We want to have a weekly conversation with the personality or personalities in NASCAR and looking through the sport through their eyes and also about who they are as people. So we've got a great roster up for this season. It'll be broad, diverse, and plentiful, but we plan on leading a lot on our NBC Sports talent. We've got several terrific analysts on our team, and we will start with one of my longtime favorites, not just on television, but also as a driver and an interview. I'm, I'm being, I'm not being facetious. <laughs> this is completely genuine. It's Kyle Petty. Uh, Kyle, welcome. You are the, you're the first guest. Congratulations. Thank you. you know, there's nothing better than being the first and starting with the bar really low. <laughs> you guys, you're, you guys are starting. It's, it's good. Everybody can raise it from here. And we're catching you in the midst of a whirlwind off season. Would you care to bring everybody up to speed oh, yeah. on, on where you've been the last six weeks? Got married. Uh, got married uh, December twelfth. Uh, came home for Christmas. Went to Wyoming with my sisters and my dad. Uh, came home for three or four days. Drove across country uh, in a Dodge Durango. Uh, to chart our path for the charity ride this year uh, from Palm Springs back across. So that was pretty exciting. Was home for three or four days and went to Durango for Snowdown, uh, an event they have out there, a charity event they have out there. So that was pretty good. So I've been home since December, maybe 10 or 12 days. But So it's been been a pretty good off season, really. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of a yeah. whirlwind. So appreciate you carving out some time. I want to talk to you a little about a little bit more of the personal side and a little bit more of your, your process on a race weekend. But, but first want to start with just the burning issues in NASCAR at the moment, the the big one burning. Um, and in this case it applies smoke. The big one right now is smoke. Tony Stewart. Uh, we're taping this on Wednesday, February 2nd. So we don't know his status at the moment, but clearly when a guy's been in a hospital for a couple of days, we can, we, we can certainly presume this, this is, this is a serious turn of events and a very unfortunate one. And what's been really a career, defined by drama both yeah. both good and bad you you followed him from the beginning i know you know him well what, what do you make I, mean, I saw some drivers tweet this yesterday that this is just it's another tough break what, what do you make of the last two and a half years for for tony stewart 
you know, it's it's hard to know what to make of it. Um, you know, if, if we go back to to the Sprint car accident um, and then the tragedy uh, that happened in New York, um, and then really honestly, had he recovered from that, I think we look at it, at how he ran on the racetrack last year, um, and you you not so much the physical side of it, but the emotional side of of all the drama that went on uh, in that previous time, and then you add this on top of it. Um, I, you know, it, it's tough. It, it's tough to really say why things happen or, or how they happen, and it's tough to come back from stuff. Um, you know, we saw that it looked like he was, was on the road to recovery after, after the sprint car accident. Um, and then, again, the tragedy that happened in New York, emotionally, I, I, th- I think that devastated him. Um, if you really sat and, and spent any time with him and talked to him, Tony's – He's got that gruff exterior, and he's got that gruff appearance where he he wants to come across as that guy. Uh, but gosh, he's he's just got a heart of gold. I don't I don't right. even know how to explain it. And and he's he's emotional that way. That's why he gets. That's why we see these outbursts of temper sometime. Uh, you can see the emotion he shows there is just as strong. The love he shows and the caring he shows for people on the other side. So I'm not sure he had ever really got past that point and recovered from that. And then this, um, you know, and as you said, this is a little bit more serious. Uh, I think even though we don't know what's going on for him to be totally, they've, they've circled the wagons. They're not letting any information out. There's not much getting out. There's not much getting in. It doesn't seem like, so, um, there is something there and it, it, we just, you just hope that he's okay. Yeah. Uh, You know, you kind of touched on it there. Those who know him well and know him behind the scenes, know another side of yes. Tony that, that you don't obviously the, the public perception is this mercurial lightning rod you yeah. know runs hot and cold um, has obviously some anger management uh, <laughs> problems at times with throwing helmets and the like but everybody knows there's that soft side and AJ Foyt talked uh, at the Rolex last weekend to some reporters about how he still feels as if Tony's still getting over the tragedy in, yes. in Canandaigua so I mean, for somebody who knows him well, for for those inside the sport, I would think that's I – and mean, here's a guy who just doesn't seem to be able to, to catch a break for no. whatever reason. Yeah, he, he can't – he's not catching a break. And, and you know, I'll say this, um, and, and I know my, sp- my father spent some time with him. My father had a racing accident and during drag racing back in the, in the mid-'60s uh, where a young man was killed. Um, and, and my father's 78 years old. He never got over it. Um, Adam, my son, had the same type accident um, in, in, in a pit accident in Minnesota um, and, and struggled with it, struggled hard with it. And, and, you know, at the time of his accident, he was not over it, and I don't believe he would have ever gotten over that. And I don't think Tony will ever get over what happened. Um, and, and what we do see out of, and, and I look at my father a little bit different, we've never seen you know, you don't see my father go up or down. He's the same all the time. You, you don't know what's on his mind, what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just always the same. Tony has those, those moments where, where and, and, you know, we, we call it anger management. You call it an outburst, whatever. Uh, it's, I, I always just look at it as an explosion of passion because he cares about something that much. You've, you've made him mad. He cares about racing. He cares about people. He cares about something that much. He will go off one way, but you know when you explode that way um, that the waters that lie there run deep and run run still sometimes. And, and I think that's where he retreats to. Uh, it's just his his emotions are so deep sometimes that I just don't think he 
he ever gets over that. But I don't think he – for this just to keep compounding, it right. seems like it's one thing right. after another. Um, it just seems like finally – you know, you, you just keep beating him down. And I don't think you can beat Tony Stewart down. Don't get me wrong on that. Uh, but at the same time, it's just he's on the mat, and he just can't seem to get up. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned your dad and the, and the, the accident he had in, in drag racing and, and not getting past yeah. it. Like, I, did it did it change him in ways that, yeah. that you saw? Yeah. Not really? Yeah. Um, and, and my mom, my mom I, w- I was young. I was only five or six. But my mom would talk about it, um, that he would just leave the house for hours. And just walk and walk out through the woods and walk over to the shop and hang out and uh, question whether what they were doing is what he should be doing. You know, is this what, what I need to be doing? Um, and, and I think he looked at it and, and that's all he had ever done. That's all my dad had ever done. And that's all Tony's ever done. You know, that's, that's all you – I don't know how to explain it to people. And, and it sounds – I don't know. It sounds like such a simplistic answer sometimes or or an explanation but when you love something like racing the way Tony does when you love something like like my father did you find solace in in its arms in the arms of of racing in the arms of that race car setting being wrapped in that race car there's solace when Adam Adam passed away all I wanted to do was be in his race car that's where I felt comfortable that's where I felt safe that's where I felt closest to him and I think Tony was the same way. Just get me back in a race car. Just let me be in a race car. That's where, that's my world. That's where I find peace. And I think that's where he has been the most peaceful. Outside that race car, there's chaos always, it seems like, or mm-hmm. over the last three or four years that, that revolve around him. Um, but I, I do believe race car drivers have, and you've been around race car drivers, you know how they are. We're all just about a half a bubble off left or right <laughs> and, and, and not really straight up about a lot of stuff. But... Race car drivers have a crazy way of taking things and putting it in a box and putting it on a shelf and either dealing with it later or never dealing with it at all. Um, but I think this with Tony, that, that he has dealt with, with that just as my father has his whole life, and um, that will always be there. But uh, like I say, he just needs to catch a break and, and be able to catch his breath now. Yeah, I've always I, – I appreciate the point of the, the bubble because like I, I've always – Told explain it to people who don't know racing is that their brains are wired differently. Yeah, your brain is wired differently because <laughs> you're okay with like going into a corner at 200 miles an hour. Yeah. This is perfectly normal, man. I'm gonna make it through here and be <laughs> and be okay. Um, and that that's that is the one thing that all race car drivers. I have never ever spoken uh, to to a driver who didn't think they could make something happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Put me in here six wide. I'm, I'll come out okay. Right. You know, let me go to the high side. I'll come out okay. You know, it, it's always, it's going to be somebody else, but I'm going to be okay. You know what I mean? You, and you always think, okay, that didn't work, but we can fix it and go again. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way they are. And I think that's the way they approach life. Is, is there something to, I may be reading too much into this, but I was reflecting on, on Stuart today, and I was thinking about, like, other racers that have had rough patches. And I, I was sort of surprised me that like I was able to, to like just come to many of them just off the top of my head. I mean, not, not as if the, it's analogous to what Tony's going through, but obviously, you know, Bobby Allison mm-hmm. accident at Pocono where he lo- loses his memory, um, loses his memory of the Daytona 500, uh, that he won with his son right behind him and then has his sons die in succession in, in a couple of years and, and goes through great like personal tumult. Is there something about racing that um i don't know that uh, that that lifestyle just lends itself to having 
misfortune or, or whatever? You know, that's a good question. Um, and, and that's tough. I, I think if you play and if you play or do anything, and I, I truly believe this, where the rewards are so great, the penalty has to be just as great the other way mm-hmm. uh, for you to, to, to understand that. And, and, you know, these guys go out there week in and week out, and they, they drive these cars. And, and NASCAR has done a tremendous job of making them safer. Um, I grew up at a time where we would go to the racetrack and we'd be playing in the infield with, with families and somebody would come get a group of kids or, or whatever and we would never see those kids again because their father had been killed in the race wow. uh, or, or something had happened. And, and you think back on it and at the time when you're seven or eight years old, it's just normal. Uh, it's, it's to some crazy degree, it's like growing up in a war zone because you just don't, you, it, it twists you a little bit but you don't realize you're being twisted at that time. And, you know, I think when you win Daytona or you win a championship and you see these guys and, and the elation that they have and putting it all on the line to get to that point, there's a reverse side of that coin. There, there's another side. And the tragedy can be just as deep. Um, and and, and the, the pitfalls of the sport can be just as deep. And I, I think when, when – we look at that when you look at Dale Senior and, and his accident. When we look at some of the great drivers who have come along, um, and how at different times, as high as they've been, they've been just as low the other way. Um, and, and it kind of, and, and sometimes maybe it just balances itself out. My dad always had this crazy thing where, you know, you can run out of gas on the last lap and lose a race, but you'll probably win one because the gods have a way of, of balancing balancing the world out. Uh, so if you're going to have a lot of highs, you're going to have some lows that, that are just as just as far, I think. Uh, and maybe that's more of a philosophy than it is anything else. But I think you have to approach it that way. Right, right. Uh, before th- this most recent news with, with Tony Stewart's back injury, he, he made news a couple weeks ago at the media tour. Uh, the focus was on the fact that he, he said NASCAR chairman Brian France uh, doesn't spend enough time in the trenches, as he put it. Um, he, he showed some measure of respect for Brian, but also clearly wanted to see more of him at the races, thought he didn't, wasn't connected enough. That was everybody focused on. on. What, what I want to ask you about is he also called out his peers somewhat indirectly and in that he said that he wanted Brian to be there so that they would speak their minds in front of him more often. I think he felt it, there was almost this undercurrent from smoke of, I'm the only guy out here who's speaking my mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, even when he's in those driver council meetings, I think he feels like he's not seeing Brian when all of his peers now are, are having this new way of having a dialogue with NASCAR. He's still not seeing the chief guy, and I think he still feels like he's not the guy. Uh, he, or he's the only guy who's, yeah. who's saying those things. You were outspoken in your day. You, you were not hesitant, I think, to, to take on NASCAR. Does, does Tony have a point? That, yes. Do, do drivers need to be just more outspoken outspoken for the sake of outspokenness no mm-hmm. okay to just say something no um i do believe i do believe that they need to be able to speak and not fear retribution and not fear a backlash from what they say um you know i i, I told mike this okay and, and mike helped this one time and, and i will i will say this to you uh, I said some stuff on TV one day, and, and Mike came to me, and he said... Um, he this said, was another network? Yeah, another network. <laughs> yes, another network. Another network. And in the beginning, when I was maybe more outspoken, and I said some stuff, and Mike said, 
why do you hate us? Why, why do you hate NASCAR? Why don't, why don't you like NASCAR? And I said, man, I said, you got it all wrong. And he said, no, I, I just don't understand it. And I said, I love, I love NASCAR. I said, my grandfather was here from the very beginning, and he, he chose this life. And this is the life that my father followed and, and I follow. And I love everything about it. Love the fans, love the racetracks, love racing people, love the race cars. And, and I said, but, you know, as, as my grandfather came along, I said, he questioned everything that Bill France Sr. said or did. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Why is this? Because he loved the sport and he wanted to know it. And I said, and was Junior came, when Bill Jr. came along, my dad did the same thing. And I said, so it's just in my DNA to question everything y'all do <laughs> to make sure I understand why you're doing it and where you're going. Right. It's just in my DNA. I, I, can't, I can't fault that. And I told him, I said, it's kind of like after you've been married to somebody because my, our, my family's been in, in this sport for 60-some-odd years. When you're married to a woman after 60 years, you can tell her she looks fat in that dress. <laughs> she still knows you love her. Right. You love her more than anything in the world, or you wouldn't have been married to her for 60 years. You wouldn't look after her. You wouldn't take care of her. You wouldn't go to church with her. You wouldn't, you wouldn't just be there for her. Um, she knows you love her, but you can be honest with her. And I think that's what Tony is trying to say sometimes. I love this sport. Mm-hmm. i just got to be honest with you. i just got to throw it out there and say, why did this happen? Why aren't you doing this? Why are we doing that? And I think Tony's really good at doing that. And, and I think – as Tony also came along, and, and as, as we go back and, and saw what Senior did and saw what these other guys did, the trailer was always open when Bill France Jr. was here. I mean, you walk in anytime you want to, close the door in the front office, and you could have a one-on-one with him. Now, it may not go anywhere, but you felt there was a dialogue. And Mike Helton has done, I always believe Helton has done a great job of doing the same thing. It may not go anywhere, but it's always been open. But... What's happened is that what the drivers have begun, are, are beginning to talk about and, and have, have complained about is going in one direction, and NASCAR seems to be going in a totally different direction as far as the drivers go. We talked downforce, NASCAR wanted more, drivers wanted less. You know, and there's always that yin and yang when you, when you kind of look at it. So I think Tony still feels like that uh, Brian is the head guy. I should be able to go to Brian, and Brian should be able to get something done, or Brian should at least listen to me. And if Brian's not at the racetrack, Tony doesn't feel like he has that. Right. You know? And other drivers, as they've come along, have followed more in the line, and I, I will say this, Jeff Gordon has been a spokesman for, for the sport and has been a leader in the sport, but he's about as controversial as Kleenex. You know what I mean? I mean, he's just not. He's not going to go in there and fight, and he never was. That's not who Jeff Gordon was. You had to really make him mad to get him to, to speak out on stuff. Jimmy's the same way. Uh, some, of those, some of the newer drivers, they are as concerned about their image and what they do and more concerned maybe about that, it appears to me from the outside looking in, than they care for the sport. Mm-hmm. Tony gives back to the sport. Tony owns a racetrack. Tony knows what it's like to run a racetrack. Tony knows what it's like to own a race team. Tony knows what it's like to drive. Tony knows what it's like to be a fan. He's that all-encompassing guy that can look at one particular question from about five or six different angles. Mm-hmm. Jimmy can't do that. He just shows up and drives. Mm-hmm. Jeff couldn't do that. He just shows up and drives. I don't care if his name is on Jimmy's car. He just shows up and drives. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and there's not a lot of those guys out there. Uh-huh. So when Tony speaks – I listen. 
when Tony speaks, a lot of people in the industry listen. You know what I mean? When Denny speaks or Jeff or, Jeff or Jimmy speak, yeah, I got you. But there's an ulterior motive. You want something out of this too. Huh. You know what I mean? So I, I think I look at it as Tony's a little bit of a throwback, looking for a throwback era that's not here anymore. It's not here anymore. It's past. And, and I understand what he's saying, but we have to embrace the driver council and embrace the group mentality and the mentality of, okay, ten of us are going to sit down here, eight of us may only agree on it, or six of us may, but that's the direction the other ones are going to have to go in. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think it's um, – I think the sport's just changed. And, um, you know, Tony is that – he's probably that last back And I, I would like to see guys be more open and honest about what they think about track conditions or what they think about safety conditions or what they think about this and that. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see it. But there might be some merit – to Tony's point that Brian should go to the driver council meetings, which oh, yeah. currently he doesn't. Currently yeah. Brian says, I don't want to go because I don't want to color their opinions. I don't want them to feel as if they're going to be more reticent in that room. If I'm there, I want them to speak their minds. And well, Tony's point is, I want you in that room because I because of that. I want them right. to speak their mind. I want to have the, like yeah. you were said, I guess it is like an older married couple. Yeah. You fight and then you get past it and figure it out. Right? Yeah, and, and you know, I think if we go back to, if we go back to, to, to Mike and go back to, and go back to Bill Jr., I know of a million conversations that my father had with him. I sat in conversations that Dale Earnhardt Sr. and myself or Rusty Wallace, and we'd sit up front and talk about things, never held against you. Never held. He did not hold that against you. That was a forum to go in the front of that NASCAR truck and sit down and talk. It was, you know, it was like, that's Switzerland. We can come in here and <laughs> scream at each other, but when we leave, it's all left inside the room. And And I think some of the drivers – Sometimes when you see guys penalized for saying certain things or actions detrimental to the sport of whatever, yeah. uh, they're afraid to say anything. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they're afraid to say it in a public forum. And then when you're sitting there with, with Brian, you're probably afraid to say it to Brian in some way. So I see Brian's point too. I yeah. do see Brian's point. Yeah. Uh, I would just like to see Brian from the history of the sport and, and, and being around the sport to see him – there more often and they're more in a I'm just here I don't have to say anything I just have to be here at the driver's meeting maybe at a council meeting uh walk through the garage area every now and then stop by you know talk to to Richard Childress talk to Hendrick and then let's I want to see you down here talking to Landon Castle he's helping you put on the show too you know what I mean I want to see you talking to some of these other teams and team owners just to show that you have the total sport is what you're concerned about not just the sharp end of the stick sometimes. You mentioned Denny, and it seems as if he's certainly somewhat emerged as the, as the de facto leader of the, of yeah. the driver council, maybe not by title, but certainly by, by fiat to some degree. Uh, and Jeff Gordon's retired. Tony Stewart is going to retire for the, the, this year. Um, what, is, does Denny become – does he fill a void there, do you think? No. Or, or, no? I mean, is the void just like – is there no void to be filled because you can't just – I don't think the void's shoots. there anymore. I don't, I don't think you have that. I think the council is that now. You know what I mean? And, and I know you say I – know, I know as we talk here and you say he's kind of taken the leadership of the council, but it's still a council. You know what I mean? It's still a council. There is we, – we don't have that you, – you don't have that, you know, one-on-one where two men sit down at a table and discuss it and come up with, with a resolution and walk out and tell everybody else. Now we have the council deciding what's important to them going to these meetings and everybody discussing it 
as a group, and then we have, it, you know, we've gone from, and maybe, maybe, and, and, you know, you can say it's better or worse. I don't know. Um, it, that was more of a dictatorship, and it worked. Okay, and it worked for a lot of people. I don't care. You, I, we all complained about it, but by God, it worked. And, and now we've gone to a, a cabinet style or more a, of a democracy yeah. style where everybody's going to put in their two cents worth, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do. Um, and I think you can have too many chiefs and not enough Indians sometimes uh, when, you, when you get into that. But I do – we don't have as, – as I look over the landscape right now, and, and you say, Denny, and maybe I spoke too soon, but I, I will say this – I look at, at, at Joe Gibbs Racing, and let, let's look at, at Joe Gibbs Racing as an organization, is they have, you know, an incredible amount of talent. When, when we look from Daniel Suarez all the way to Matt Kenseth, and you look at Matt and you look at Kyle that just won, won the championship, you look at Carl uh, and you look at Denny, and let's take Carl out and take Matt out, and let's look at where that team was when it was Denny and Kyle. Tons of talent but were they really going anywhere? Mm-hmm. And then Matt comes in, and boom. And I'm not saying that Matt added to it, but Matt's a thinker. Matt's a little bit more cerebral on how he approaches the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at Danny, and let me, let me put it in this, these terms. And this is why I say it's tough to be, be a leader at, at this stage for Denny. I think he can be, uh, but, and I think he can, can mold himself into one. But I looked at Joe Gibbs like this and I'm going to use a baseball analogy. They had Kyle Busch, and they had, had Denny, and you've, you've got this team over here, and you just got a bunch of guys that throw fastballs. From a baseball analogy, you just got guys that throw fastballs. They put Matt Kenseth in, they got a pitcher. Mm, right. Okay, they got a pitcher. He'll throw a change up, he'll right. throw a curve. He's at that stage in life where he doesn't have to depend on overpowering you. He can outthink you, he can outdrive you, He'll outposition you. He thinks about the race. He doesn't just go out there and run the car in the ground. And and I think Denny and Kyle has seen have seen how that works, and they're becoming pitchers. Right. These two guys are becoming pitchers by following by following Matt. And now we see what the team's done over the last two or three years. So I think that's changed the the mentality of that team a little bit. And, and that's why I say Denny's still a fastball pitcher to me. You know what I mean? So he's not that guy that's the veteran in the in the bullpen that's going to say. Hey kids, you're gonna throw your arm out by the time you're 26. <laughs> right, you know right, what I mean? Right. It quit hitting the walls, quit doing this. Let's think about it a little bit. But Matt is that guy. So, you know, I think there are those guys that are quiet like Matt, and those guys that are in the garage area that when they speak, people listen because they speak so infrequently. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, and they'll they'll begin to rise up uh, a little bit higher up the totem pole as as we see uh, a, a, a Jeff Gordon or a Tony Stewart. That's a fascinating analogy. I mean, because I think you're right. I think Matt Kenseth is like the Wiley veteran. Yeah. Who did, yeah, he doesn't throw 95 or 98 like Kyle Busch yeah. does anymore, but he has that way to be a clubhouse leader to get the most out yes. of his ability. Where That's the way I look at it. Hurling. That's fascinating. Uh, speaking of the democratization of NASCAR, uh, on another front, we're starting to see this as well, maybe not to the same extent. Well, somewhat with the Race Team Alliance. And now we're talking – it sounds like these, this system of charters, which is going to be de facto franchising, essentially, is, is going to happen in NASCAR. And what gets me about this, Kyle, is I mean, I, I have not been around NASCAR quite as long as you, but I, I've been around long enough that like, I know that this has been an age-old discussion. Yeah. And whenever franchising, which NASCAR doesn't want to say anymore, but like whenever it was brought up in the past, 
Um, it was always, no, never going to happen. Independent contractor model, this is the way it's done. Yeah. And f- even when the RTA formed, the initial reaction from NASCAR was very frosty. And maybe that was just inherently how they've been sort of trained to react. Maybe it was like a Pavlovian sort of like, oh, well, franchising, no, we can't do it. I, it's, it seems like it's turned on a dime in the last year and a half. What's your take on, like, what's changed that suddenly now we're talking about basically franchising teams? You know, I don't know. Um, and, and I truly don't know why it happened this quick. Um, because, as you said, and, and it's funny, I, I watched the Hall of Fame stuff, and, and you, you watched Curtis Turner go in. Curtis Turner was banned from NASCAR for trying to start a union. Right, right. For better pay. Um, safer conditions, all these things. And here we are, 2016, 50 years later. Exactly. And that's where we're at. We're in the same place. It's the same discussion. Same, same discussion. Yeah. Same discussion. And, and my dad and a bunch of them tried 10 years or 12 years after Curtis to do the same thing. And they, were, they all came home from Talladega and, you know, they broke the union right there. But basically, that's what we're back to. And it's not a union, but you're back to that mentality or that, that, that approach to the sport. And, and, I don't know why it has turned like it has. I, I will say this. I do believe that, and, and this is not, and, and this is not a, I think in, in some ways, and I've always compared our sport, and I'm sorry because I'm from rural North Carolina, um, to, to, to farming. No, it's it's yeah. family farms. Yep. And, and I always tell people all the time, you know what? In the neighborhood I grew up in, the community I grew up in, everybody had a dairy farm or a tobacco farm or a chicken farm. We just farmed race cars. That's a, that's, we fit right in. We just farmed race cars. And what we had was individual family farms, individual farms. And if we go back to the Wood Brothers, if we go back to Bud Moore, if we go back to Junior Johnson, uh, if we go back to Petty Enterprises, if we go back to a lot of these, these businesses, they were family businesses, small businesses. And there's nothing sadder for me than to look at the record book and be flipping through the record book and see Bud Moore's name and Junior Johnson's name and all these guys' names that did so much for the sport as owners, as owners. And when they went out of business, they had nothing. They had nothing. Um, brick and mortar is all they had. They hadn't built anything. Um, and, and, and that's the way a family farm is. And, and the big picture, that's the way a family farm is. When you decide to stop farming – Say your tractors, say your barn, say your land, that's all you got. Um, but what the sport did, starting in, in probably late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, and really got to be in a snowball through the 90s, is we became corporate farms with Hendrick and with Roush and with guys like that. So much more on the line. Now these aren't family farms anymore. These are corporate farms. These are big-time guys. Um, and I think finally the sport has grown um, – through through TV, um, through the TV package that we have and, and the monetary package that comes with the TV, through 24-7 on Sirius Radio, through so much stuff that the family farm itself is so big, it has to survive. And it has to survive to keep the others, to keep the big sport running. So when NASCAR looks at it, it's like, okay, how can we keep Rick Hendrick in business? How can we keep Joe Gibbs? In? How can we help these guys, and how can we work? And I'm not saying they want to help, but it's because these guys want to – they want something. You know what I mean? But at the same time, if I'm NASCAR and I help Richard Petty with a charter, Richard Petty Motorsports, or I help Rick Hendrick with a charter, or I help 
Jack Roush with the charter, then now we're all team players together in this, and we all have some skin in the game, and we all have to make the thing grow. In the past, if we go back to last year, years in the past, it's up to NASCAR to grow this thing. Right. And we just right. benefit, or, or the teams just benefit. And if NASCAR falls on their face, we're all out of business. If something happens, we're all now we're all in it together. And I don't know if they look at it that way. Um, I would like to think in some way somebody brought that up and they looked at it. But in the big picture, I think it's it's it's. Just, I think everybody, and 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 this is driven by money. So let's just be honest. It's 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 all driven by money. Right, right. When when owners sit back and see what happened to Bud Moore and to Junior Johnson and guy icons like that of the sport, and then they see how much money NBC or ESPN or TBS or Fox pays, and they say, "Whoa, there's a huge disparity here." You know, I don't want to. I don't want it all, but I want my share. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I think that's what, and you look at what the NFL does, and you look at what other sports do, and you say, why can't our sport be closer? We don't. We might not want the same package, but why can't we get in the ballpark and be closer? Uh, but I truly, just as we talked about the drivers' council and how the model changed, this is a total. Yeah. This is a total paradigm shift in this sport. And and also, like, I wonder about it from the NASCAR perspective, the, the dynamics of versus 1969 Talladega where, where NASCAR can say, okay, yeah. fine, you want to adhere to our rules? We'll go get 43 other people, 43 other cars, and we'll do this race. It seems to me like the landscape in terms of that with the wave of consolidation over the industry with you can't really be an independent in any sense of the word yeah. anymore. You can't just go build a car and build an engine. you yeah. got to talk to Rick Hendrick for an engine, or you got to talk to Roush Yates or Toyota. And like, It seems to me like the owners hold more of the cards now than ever before Yeah, in, in some ways. Yeah, you know, I think that this is, and, and I told Steve O'Donnell this a few years ago, the consolidation of engine manufacturers is the thing that scares me the most mm-hmm. because I've seen it in open-wheel racing and other forms of racing where if one engine manufacturer pulls out, half the field is eliminated. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do I furnish engines to these guys? So when we saw started seeing the consolidation of the Ford engine package or the Toyota engine package, and, and you talk about that consolidation. That consolidation in NASCAR um, has trickled from, from the Cup Series to the Xfinity Series to the, to the Truck Series. And when we really sit down and talk about it, and you look at the Cup Series, and let's just take 43 cars, there's what, 10 or 15 owners, maybe. And then when we really get down to the Xfinity and the Truck, there's maybe 8 or 10 owners in each one of those because we've got Xfinity or we've got Cup guys fielding cars in those. So back to the model of when, you know, when in, in the 70s when my dad and those guys walked out of Talladega and they just filled in with Grand American cars and anything they could, you know what? Those those car counts aren't there anymore. Right. They can't just call the truck series and say, hey, you 10 owners, well, now I've got 12 cars. Well, you five, nope, now I've only got 15 cars. They yeah. can't put on a show, right. you know. So I do believe uh, in some way they had to look at some of that and say, whoa, 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 we got to protect ourselves too. We've yeah. got to make sure that we have at least 30 to 40 cars here week in and week out that are showing up, uh, and we give these guys something to shoot for, and, and we pay for it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, people, don't, I don't think, know this, but in addition to being a driver, being now a member of the media, TV analyst for several years, you also dabbled in ownership a little bit in terms of – you ran day to day at Petty Enterprises for a couple of years, right? In the early two thousands, early yeah. 2000s? Here's well, here's what happened. Yeah, I've had a crazy career. <laughs> is 
in, in um, I started my team, uh, and then in 84, 85, 83, 84, 85, um, my dad left and went to drive for Mike Curb and left me at Petty Enterprises. So I basically ran Petty Enterprises for a year then, mm-hmm. uh, and then I left there and went to drive for the Wood Brothers. Uh, then I went to drive for Felix, and in 96, 97, I left Felix and started my own team, PE2, um, and ran a couple of years with Hot Wheels. Uh, so I ran my own team then and then consolidated back with my dad because Adam was coming along. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I looked at it, uh, again, from a farm perspective maybe, where my grandfather had given my dad, m- my dad a place to race, and my dad had given me a place to race when I started, and I didn't have a place for Adam to race. So I had to start a team. So I had a place for him to race coming along. And then, um, yeah, after Adam's accident and in the early 2000, um, then, yeah, I kind of looked after – there was a group of us, but I kind of looked after it. What was that like? I mean, the day-to-day – Total chaos. Yeah. Total chaos. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's hard, and, I, and that's why and, – and we talked earlier about Tony. I have such empathy for Tony being in an owner and a driver position. And mm-hmm. somebody – because – it, it's tougher. Even though you want to think that being an owner doesn't take something away from your driving, it does. It's a lot simpler to show up with a helmet and a uniform and know your only job is to get in that car. That your job is not to, well, I've got to go do sponsor appearances for not only my car, but for the other car too because I'm part of the package and it's a part of the deal. And, and yes, we've got to hire a new crew chief, so we need to interview him and I need to talk to him and we need to make sure that he fits with this driver or that driver or that – our engineers and everybody work together. So um, it was, it's tough. It, it, racing is, is, is a funny sport where you can have lots of money, but very little money sticks, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just like, it just, it, it's a cash burning machine. You just keep <laughs> throwing cash in it. And, and every now and then a few dollars will fall on the floor and you can pick them up and put them in your pocket, it seems like. But you live out of it. And yeah. that's what we always did at Penny Enterprise. We lived out of business. Um, back to a family farm analogy, where you lived, you never went without shoes, you never went without food, you never went without a house, you knew what you needed, but the majority of all the money went back into to a race car, and that's kind of the way we approached it um, when we took over, was hire the best people we can, if we can perform on the racetrack, then then we'll be okay. We never performed the way we wanted to, um, but we built a lot of stuff and did a lot of, of decent stuff. Yeah. Would you ever have any interest in helping out again on the team side? Yes. I, you know, I really would. Uh, I really because I just I love this sport. You know what I mean? I mean I, I do TV and and I, I tell people all the time and and I'll say it here. When I was a little boy and and I went and watched my dad race, um, and I would go home at night and crawl in bed and I dream I dreamed of being a race car driver. I dreamed of sitting in a seat and hanging onto a steering wheel. Um, I didn't dream about doing commercials. You know what I mean? I I didn't dream about having to make sponsor appearances. I didn't dream about having to do interviews or doing stuff. I dreamed about driving a race car. That's what you dream about. You don't dream about all the peripheral stuff. And, you know, as you get older and, and that becomes part of it, the core of what that is is still that race car. You dream about race cars. And, you know, I do the TV stuff. I never in my life dreamed someday I want to be on TV. That's right. what I, that's that's going to be my dream <laughs> job. You know what I mean? This is my secondary job for, from 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 my perspective because it's not my dream job. I'm sorry, it's it's other people's dream job, but it's not my dream job. And so to be involved in racing was to do TV and do stuff. It kept me around race people, kept me in the garage area, kept me talking to people, kept me around race cars. And my dad, you know, 
he thought he could get away from it, and he sold his team and then went back and spent all the money that he made off selling it and bought another team. So he can't get away from it either. So for me, just being around race cars and, and being around the people. So, yeah, I, I think it's a different perspective now because they don't have the driving part. So you could focus more on, on the ownership. And I will say this, and I've said this before, okay, when I look back on the history of the sport, okay, and, and I look back at this sport, and I look at, at guys like my dad, guys like Kale, guys like Daryl that started his team, um, guys that, that started teams, uh, Ricky Rudd, guys that started their own teams and did stuff. Um, and and they weren't the mo- they've not been the most successful teams. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. But when I look at Childers, that's a successful team. Um, when I look at journeyman drivers, they're better owners than superstar drivers, okay? And I'll, I'll go to the NBA. When yeah. I look at journeyman players, they're better coaches yeah. than superstars. Superstars make terrible managers. Terrible. Yeah. Because superstars <laughs> don't understand why you can't do what they did. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Why can't you just drive it like I drove it? Why can't you just make that, that move? Why can't you just do it? Where a guy like Childers can look at it and say, I understand. I got you. Let's, let's do this. Let's shuffle this way and let's do this. I don't consider myself ever – ever in any conversation to be a superstar, I would be more of a journeyman driver. So I think I look at it a little bit different, and I definitely look at it a little bit different than my dad does sometimes. But I look at it from a diff- little bit different perspective. But I do want to be involved in it, even when I'm – if I'm 90 years old, I want to be here somewhere. Right. Before we came in here, you, you were telling a great story about the team, which I, I – got to have you tell here about finding these balance sheets from the 1950s that oh, your yeah. grandmother kept. My grandmother, we, we were going through the shop. My, I just left my dad's shop earlier, and they found a box. My grandmother um, always kept books. It used to be Lee Petty Engineering, and then it became Petty Enterprises. Um, and now it's known as Richard Petty's Garage or, or Petty's Garage and Richard Petty Motorsportsman. Uh, until my grandmother got sick, my grandmother wrote all the checks for all the bills for everything that went to, everything went across her desk when she was 75 years old, everything's still going across her desk. And, um, it, it's so funny that we found some stuff. We, we found some stuff in, in a box up over the, over the thing. And I think you, you used to, and, and we saw this, uh, NBC did a piece on this last year with lightning down at one of the ticket sellers at Daytona. Um, and, and, Miss Upton is who she was for us. And she would sit in a car after the race, and you would go over to the window, and, and she would say, Richard Petty finished 26th. Here's $600. You know what I mean? And she would hand the money out the window. And that's how you got paid. It didn't come in a check. It didn't come. You just got paid in cash. Station wagon that they were in would be full of cash. Uh, and it would be locked up. But anyhow, so we found some receipts that said Richard Petty at Rockingham won $450 for finishing 28th or something like that. But my grandmother had a um, – we had a plane ticket. My grandfather went to New York, um, and it, it, the plane ticket was $38 round trip from Greensboro, North Carolina to New York. Had a check for Greensboro and a check for, for New York because it was taken off from Greensboro landing in New York. And um, he stayed at the Bristol Hotel for $7 a night. Uh, he was up there for three days. All his receipts were um, – were paper clipped to this thing, so $38, $7 a night, $21. Now you're looking at $59. Then he had some food expense, and she wrote on the bottom of it, 
he spent too much. <laughs> and, and, and I'm thinking, that's when racing was racing right there. He went to New York on 50 bucks and he spent too much. <laughs> Extravagance. But, but, but it's cool. And we were talking about it because it'd be cool to go back through that. Yep. And, and you know, it showed where they went to a, to a junkyard and bought four leaf springs for $1.25 a piece. You know what I mean? <laughs> went to a junkyard, bought four leaf springs for a race car for, for $1.25 a piece, $5. And those might have won a race. Yeah, and they could have won a race somewhere. <laughs> That's exactly right. Who knows? They could have won a race. But it would be so cool, and I'm going to have to bring that up to my dad. We need to go back and look at 1961 or 1968, whatever, and go through all my grandmother's checks and all the receipts and say, this is how much it costs because uh, it's there somewhere in those books. Right, right. That's a great story. Um, finally, I just I, I want to talk a little bit about, about process for you on, on a race weekend. I, I, one of the things that my eyes were open to last year from being around you and Steve Letard, Jeff Burton, is – you guys have a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's not just like doing like the TV yeah. stuff on the weekend. Like as you talked about the the start of the podcast. I mean, you, you have a very busy life. What, what what's a race weekend like for you in terms of process? How do you get through it? You know, wh- wh- how do you balance everything? Well, you know what? It's it's funny because I, and I probably do it a little bit different than than some of these some of the other guys because. Yeah, and you, you, your job, and I'll go back to you. When, when, uh-huh. when you were writing and you were doing your stuff, and and a lot of the stuff that you would do, you would do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, mm-hmm. Thursday, but you finish that loop and you close that loop at the racetrack, you know. And you would sit down with Tony, or you sit down with, and I don't really try to talk to drivers about anything at the racetrack, or t- crew members or crew chiefs or anything at the racetrack, other than to just BS with them, because that's their office. That's where they work. Okay. That's that's their job. Yeah. So I don't. I, I try not. I try to be that guy. When you see Kyle coming, you know it's just going to be BS. He, he's not going to ask you <laughs> something serious at the racetrack. Right. If he needs to know something, he probably called you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or sometime on Thursday, and you talked about it on the phone. You texted each other. You emailed each whatever. But you had the conversation, so he knows how you feel about it before you get there. Because the thing is, once I got to a racetrack as a driver, I just wanted to focus on that car. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. that's what you want to do. And it seems like anything that distracted from that. So, but you get there, you spend time in the garage area, you walk around, you talk to guys. Listen, we were in business at Penny Enterprise for 50-some years. There's still a lot of guys in that garage area that used to work for my dad and that I've known my whole life and that worked for us. So I'll go to Childress's crowd or, or walk around and, and, and talk to some of those guys, talk to Joey, talk to Matt some, um, and just try to just see what's going on. Um, but, you know, when you get there – it's and you know this, it's an ever-changing story, mm-hmm. and it constantly it evolves from Friday morning on who's fastest in the first practice, who crashes in practice, who has to go to a backup car, who has to do this. Somebody got caught with this in, in pre-race inspection or pre-qualifying inspection. Somebody's too low when it's over with. Um, something's a carryover. There's always one or two stories that are a carryover from the week before. So you're always doing just listening and and talking, but. Um, you know, we do more meetings than I'm not. I'm, I'm aware. You know how I am. I've on, been in a few. I, of those, you know yeah. how I am on a meeting person. I, I like glaze <laughs> over after about five minutes, and and that's my big deal. But the thing is, is when you're there, you're just absorbing everything. You know, from pre-race to post-race to what's going on in the race and sitting in the truck and watching the race with Chris Devota or Dale Jarrett or or whoever's on on the post-race show and picking out the highlights and doing all that stuff. It is. You don't – I mean, you show up at the racetrack at 8 or 9 in the morning. 
Um, but you're still there when the last car is running too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's I, I think that's the part that that people don't understand. And and but the funny part for me is this, and I, I will say this, and I, I'm I'm going record on the podcast on this, <laughs> is we have the easiest jobs because when I look at those guys in the trailers and I look at the guys that that you know that run the wire and that set up the cameras and have to go up and, and shut the cameras off and do all their stuff and the camera guys and and all the runners. They work their butts off, man. Mm-hmm. I never I, – I have to say, when I quit driving, um, I looked at the racetrack and I said, there's a circle. And if it goes on inside that circle, that's the most important thing in the world. That's all it takes to run a race. That's what goes on inside that circle. And all of a sudden, one day, you leave that circle and you go out into the TV, lot and TV compound and you think, my God, these people are amazing out here. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like its own little world, self-contained – um, and People they were, can't even appreciate. No, I, you I, can't I, appreciate. I, my eyes popped out when I started getting the race weekend itineraries for NBC, oh. NBC Sports, and I would see you know two hundred plus people going yeah. to Daytona, and that's what it, it's just. And you see what everybody's doing, and how yeah. many people are in hotels, and just it's fascinating. And, and you look at it, and, and some of those guys get a four a.m. crew call, right, to get out there to get things set up so that we can come on at nine thirty or ten o'clock, and it looks like that's the way it's supposed right. to be. You <laughs> exactly, know what I mean? And yeah. that's the way it's supposed. So yeah. my appreciation for those guys. Uh, and for what went on out there, rose leaps and bounds. And yeah, there's times you drag back into the hotel and you think, "My God, I've put in a, a good day's work." And there's somebody still out there working. And and you think, "Yeah, we couldn't do this without them." Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to end. All thanks, right, man. Thanks for being the first guest. Thank you. The bar has set. <laughs> you can you can step over it, but you can't limbo under it. It's so low. Thanks for listening. To <laughs> and NASCAR NBC podcast. We'll be back next week. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.